Hi. Thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you like what you've been hearing, help us spread the word and tell a friend about Here and Now Anytime. Now here's the show. It's almost as if we barricade ourselves behind the things that we know, but it's really that vast darkness that we don't know that is defining things. Traveling the world in search of paradise, both literal and metaphorical. It's Wednesday, January 18th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, one writer's journey in search of the true meaning of paradise, and we'll hear from someone training the next generation of trade workers. But first, The new Congress is getting down to business, and we're getting a better picture of what Republican leader Kevin McCarthy has planned for this session. With their new majority in the House, Republicans are gearing up for a fight with the Biden administration over the borrowing limit, and even threatening impeachment for a cabinet secretary over immigration policy. Lisa Mascaro has been following it all as chief congressional correspondent for the Associated Press, and she spoke to Deepa Fernandez. So House Republicans are moving quickly to draw up articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And the last time a cabinet secretary was impeached was way back in 1876. Is this really a threat to the White House? You know, this is going to be such an interesting question, and we'll see how far the House Republicans go on this. You know, Kevin McCarthy and other leaders in the party were not so keen on long as, you know, this or any other impeachments. And we will see how far they go. Do do the Republicans really start filing these articles of impeachment or do they staff up these committees, which is what they're working on now, and and then start the probes, you know, and the, the headlines and really trying to target the Biden administration with these investigations. Okay, let's just talk for a minute about those committees because we're seeing the conservative holdouts, most of whom opposed McCarthy's election as Speaker. They're keeping and gaining spots on important committees. Who is McCarthy rewarding and punishing here? Absolutely. You've hit it exactly the way it's kind of going down. You know, early on, Speaker McCarthy, as he was trying to gain gain the majority and become Speaker, made an alliance with one of the, the most known of the sort of far-right members, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and they became fast allies. Uh, You saw them campaigning together, rolling out their Republican agenda together, and she was among those uh, who stood by him during that very long involved uh, fight that Americans saw play out on the House floor, the Speaker's fight. Uh, She stood by him and, you know, all along, she had been uh, wanting to gain a position on this House Oversight Committee. She, she got it. Um, and wow. also the mm-hmm. members of the Freedom Caucus. There are a number of members of the Freedom Caucus who also gained positions on that very important House Oversight Committee. Um, mm. The members of the Freedom Caucus, as part of their concerns with McCarthy, McCarthy when they were refusing to back him back in that uh, battle of from you know just a week ago now um one of their key holdout positions was that they wanted more representation on the committees that they care about and so you see for example Scott Perry the chairman of the conservative freedom caucus he's a congressman from Pennsylvania who was 
some at one point involved in the efforts to challenge the 2020 election, uh, you know, in trying to, you know, challenge it in favor of, of uh, former President Trump. He also now has a position on this committee. What about more moderate Republicans? Is there anything they can do about this? They weren't happy with the concessions to the far right. They were not. And this will be the test for McCarthy. Slim majority. He can't lose any votes on either side. So he's got to keep these moderates happy. And we'll see, you know, they don't always yell yell as much as the, the mm-hmm. um, others with the loudest voices. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we'll see which way they go. Lisa Mascaro is chief congressional correspondent for the Associated Press. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the number of open jobs in the skilled trades, things like plumbing and electrical work, is growing. But the number of young people interested in applying for them isn't keeping up. More after the break. The application rate for young people seeking jobs as electricians, construction workers, and other technical trades dropped by nearly half last year compared to 2020, according to the recruiting site Handshake. There's plenty of need and plenty of opportunity for people who want to make a decent living without a four-year college degree. So for a closer look at what's behind the gap and how to close it, Producer Kalyani Saxena called up Paul Iverson. He runs a pre-apprenticeship program at the University of Iowa's Labor Center. And he spoke to Scott Tong. So despite this trend, you work with some Gen Z students at the University of Iowa Labor Center. They're in a skilled construction trade apprenticeship. When you ask them why they chose this, what do they tell you? Well, um, we start out uh, actively recruiting people. So we are, um, in, some, in, in many times, first introducing them to the concept that they could do a building trades career. Mm. And that's, I think, part of the problem with, you know, saying, well, Gen Z isn't applying as much. It's because, you know, there's been 40 years of high school counselors saying you have to go to college to be successful. And so they, uh, a lot of people aren't aware of Jo- that jobs in the trades are good jobs and that you can have a good life and career, a family-sustaining career. But then when they see that um, they can pursue another option, um, you know, for people that don't like sitting in lecture halls and taking notes uh, and, and don't learn as well that way, are good good working with their hands, like to be active, like to work outside, um, that there's an option for them, then they're just, you know, very excited that, and sometimes skeptical mm. that such an option could really exist. Yeah. And, and when you say you can make a good living in one of these careers, what does that mean as far as, as wages? I mean, can a young person look forward to a, a good or reasonable uh, standard of living doing this kind of work? Um, so what you're looking at is, as an apprentice, you you earn while you learn. So you're being paid while you are in the apprenticeship program. And then when you get out of the apprenticeship program, you have no student debt. And as a fully skilled journey worker, depending on the trade, you're going to be making $60,000 to $90,000 a year, um, first year as a journey worker. Hmm. We should note that many of these jobs, construction carpentry, plumbing, are physically demanding, and they carry some physical risk. How do you talk about that with young people, that there is some, some physical risk here? 
Yeah, we um, we actually spend a lot of time uh, talking about the Occupational Safety and Health Act and and the training that you'll get in doing things safely. You know, people want to get to 60 years old and retire rather than having to retire at 48 because their body is given out on them. Yeah. So ergonomics mm-hmm. has become a very big emphasis of the trades. Um, and so there's constantly developing new ways of doing things that make it um, – uh, less taxing on your body, but certainly it is. Uh, you know, I have to tell people you have to be uh, ready to be working physically. Working, hmm. it is work that historically has been done mostly by men. How is recruiting going when you're talking to women, to underrepresented groups, for whom this may be a lot of new information? Yeah, and that's what um, a pre-apprenticeship program like ours is designed to do. So we um, emphasize women, people of color, youth age 16 to 24, people with disabilities and veterans. We talk about uh, what it's going to be like on the work site and some of the things that you have to be prepared for because there is, um, we're part of a culture change. And what I find with, with tradespeople that, you know, are in the field that are, you know, more experienced what they're really concerned about is getting the job done. Yeah. If you show that you can pull your weight, superficial differences go to the side pretty quickly. You know, if you and you just have to show you're a good worker, and then you're going to be accepted on the job site. Mm-hmm. And down the road, Paul Iverson, at least from the survey that NPR has reported on, if this trend continues and we don't have enough Gen Z persons interested in careers in the trades. What does it mean for these professions in five, in 10, in 20 years? Well, one aspect of saying at this stage, well, Gen Z isn't as interested. Um, you know, like the oldest Gen Z person is something like 26 or 27. Um, mm. it, has, it is often the case that someone... Um, enters a trade apprenticeship after they've tried something else and decided this isn't working Mm. for me, I want to change. So probably 27, 28 in that range to 30 is uh, probably the average age when people start an apprenticeship. So in some ways, Gen Z hasn't aged to the point um, where a lot of people do make the change into the trade. So I think that there will be some of that, that uh, Gen Z may try other things and decide, as other generations have, that no, really, a job in the trades uh, will be a better fit for me. And so Mm. I don't think you can say, based on Gen Z today, that they'll never be interested in the trades. And then the other aspect is, you know, if you active recruitment is very important, uh, with uh, with Gen Z. Um, but if you do it, you can find the people that you need, and there is going to be such a need over the next several years that programs will find a way to get it done. We, mm. we will attract enough Gen Z people to do the work because we will have to. Yeah. Paul Iverson is a labor educator with the University of Iowa's Labor Center. Paul, thanks so much for the time. Thank you. After the break, the writer Pico Iyer has been just about everywhere. In his latest book, he writes that while every travel ad will promise you paradise, 
the truth of what that word really means is something much deeper and more elusive. Stick around. Paradise is a word, an idea we pause and consider every now and again. But is it a place you can actually visit? We're going to talk now to a noted travel writer and author who found that some of the most spiritual places in the world are often violent places. Pico Iyer, who among his projects, he's been the biographer for the Dalai Lama, has a new book. It's called The Half-Known Life, In Search of Paradise. And he joins us now. Pico Iyer, welcome. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. So, In Search of Paradise, yours was a physical search that took you to places like Iran, Kashmir, Sri Lanka, Jerusalem. Why did you set off with the idea of paradise in mind in the first place? Well, it was a book that really came out of the pandemic. So actually, it was almost a metaphysical more than a physical search. I was staying in my mother's house. She had just emerged from hospital. And like the whole world, I was stuck at home. And so I thought back on my 48 years of travels. What had they really amounted to? And how can we find a better world and a better life, given that we're always confronted with so much difficulty? It is, of course... A physical journey, a metaphorical one, and it begins in your book in Iran. And you write, I was having to rethink almost everything. And that boy, did that resonate. I, I find that all the time in the places I've been. I just have to take my assumptions and understand how many of them have been turned upside down, including my ancestral home of China, the places I think I know I'm perhaps wrong the most. Um, what did rethinking mean in Iran? Well, I had been writing about Iran from a distance for 30 years. So just as you were saying about China, I felt, oh, I've been studying this place forever. And I'm well prepared for it. And within four hours <laughs> of arriving there, I saw I didn't know a thing. And within <laughs> 16 hours, I had learned more than from four years of research. And when I called this book The Half-Known Life, that was partly because sometimes I feel that in this age of information, we know less about the rest of the world than ever before. And often we know least of all about the countries we hear most about, such as Iran or North Korea or Cuba or Yemen. So I, I really try to see them in the round just to remind myself how little I know about them. Well, your Iran adventure has a great moment where you find your way in Perhaps you're sneaking your way into the holiest place in the city of Mashhad. How'd you get in? I slipped away from my official guide and I found a young, very friendly guy, but late 20s maybe, who offered to take me there. So it was jam-packed because it was the birthday of the long-dead saint. Everywhere people were sitting, sharing sweetmeats, releasing doves into the blue-black sky. And finally we came, as you said, to the innermost sanctum. And it was a tiny space. We quickly got separated. And I looked across the room and I saw that my driver's hand was on his heart and he was walking backwards. So he would never present his back to the saint who had been dead for almost 1200 years. And there were tears welling in his eyes. So he just looked like the picture of Islamic piety. But when we were back out on the street, he told me that his wife was a blonde Yorkshire woman who was waiting for him back in England. 
And then he told me that he had paid a human trafficker $2,500 to slip him into England in the back of a truck, breathing through a tube so he wouldn't be detected. And then he told me that the British government had very generously given him a court-appointed translator and a solicitor, and they had worked for three years to win him asylum status. In other words, he'd risked his life to steal out of Iran and now he was risking his life every summer to come back to visit the hometown and the mosque. And just as you were saying a minute ago, when he dropped me off at my hotel, I thought Iran has been in our headlines every day for the last many seasons. But I'd never heard about a dissident returning to the place he'd fled from. And I couldn't remember reading about a very faithful Islamic soul who nonetheless didn't want to live in this Islamic Republic. So just a reminder that the world is always so much more complicated than our ideas or our theories about it. Mm. Kashmir is, of course, a very complicated place. And it's a place you write that your family has a deep love for. When you went to Kashmir as part of these recent travels for the book, did the place bear any resemblance to what you expected? Yes, the parts I saw were often idyllic. And just as you say, my mother had been there in 1941 and had filled my childhood and adulthood with stories of this bewitching lake under the snow caps with meadows of fresh flowers. And so I found myself on a houseboat in Srinagar. And it couldn't have been calmer. There was a lotus pond outside my window. You could hear nothing but the whir of kingfisher's wings. People would paddle past selling exotic spices. And I thought, this is as beautiful as anything could be. But I could only think that by screening out the fact that 10 minutes away on the other side of the lake was this violently contested occupied place with 500,000 soldiers that for 70 years has been fought over by India and Pakistan. And so it struck me that I could only call that place paradise by refusing to look at the other sides of Kashmir, which was really real life for everybody else. Yeah. Well, and you, and you have to kind of hold these two ideas together. These are places that might be considered paradise or are described that way, but also are places of violence. In other places you go to, you go to Jerusalem, where we, of course, know of the generations of conflicts there. And you also go to Sri Lanka. It turns out to be a time of peace when you're there, but there have been decades of fighting between the Tamil separatists and the Sinhalese government. What drew you to Sri Lanka? You know this phenomenon. I was sent there by an editor at a time of relative <laughs> peace, and yet one could feel the war everywhere. And I think what's fascinating about Sri Lanka is precisely the fact that it's been seen as a paradise by outsiders is the cause of its tragedy. The British, the Portuguese, the Dutch, all of us tourists, everyone wants a piece of paradise, which means that it really is a very fallen and often conflicted place. And just as you were saying about Jerusalem, there's no question it's one of the most stirring magnetic places I've ever been. I'm not a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew, but there are places in Jerusalem that just move me to tears. But of course, the heart of its history is that one person's paradise is never going to be another person's. And it's really a place where all these many paradises converge and, and conflict. Why did Jerusalem move you to tears? Because I think there's an undeniable quality of charisma. Places have charisma, as people do. And after 2,000 or more years of prayer and devotion and people literally walking across the world to get there, there's some 
accumulated power to that place. Mm. Boy, Pico Iyer, as I hear you talk about that, I just think about the the one time I was able to visit Xinjiang in far western China, which, as you know, the majority of people there are, are Uyghur Muslims. And it just struck me as some of the most pious persons I'd met and in some of the most pious places. Many of them are now destroyed, but we kind of remember those moments and remember those people and the feelings that we experience when we go to those places. I mean, you have thought about this, you have written about this, and you title your book, The Half-Known Life. Where does that come from? It comes from Herman Melville, who of course was one of the great explorers into the question of where is God and does the devil exist and what does this all mean? And for me, the half-known life just arises from the fact that the older I become, the more I see it's everything we don't understand that shapes our lives. When we fall in love, when a virus arrives, when a forest fire burns down our house, as happened to me, when suddenly uh, we meet somebody who becomes the love of our life, all of that is outside the realm of explanation. And it's almost as if we barricade ourselves behind the things that we know, but it's really that vast darkness that we don't know that is defining things. And I should say, I've always wanted to go to Xinjiang. The closest I've been is Tibet, mm. and it it's perfectly speaks to what you were describing. I've been there three times, first when Tibet first opened to the world. And it's just as you're describing in Xinjiang. And what is most striking when you're at the Jokang Temple at the heart of old Tibet is that mm -hmm. the more that culture is embattled, the stronger the spirit. And when you step into that little temple, it's almost lit only by candles. And some Tibetan people have come 2,000 miles to visit this holy place. And you just see in the half-light the tears streaming down their face. And you realize that something essential in the human spirit remains, even in the presence of conflict and in the very midst of the destruction that is everywhere in Tibet and in Xinjiang. Well, and it goes back to uh, what you described. These places are are special for a reason, and it is why so many powerful countries want to have a piece of it. Uh, finally, I, I want to ask you about um, you know something a lot of journalists know and experience, including me, is these moments of wisdom that sometimes come in the most unusual times as we travel, often from the drivers of the vehicles we rent, taxi drivers or, or others. I still remember, I was with my mom traveling in China, looking up some family history, and, and we commented on the, the, the fancy high-rises and buildings and subway systems that were in the Chinese city we, we were in, and the driver said, well, you know, the key to understanding China is the things you can't see. We're missing creativity, you can't see that. You can't see the underground aquifers that we're destroying. You have a lot of those moments in your book. Exactly so. Uh, the things that you can't see would have been a good title for, for this book. The things you can't see on screen, because we get so much of the world from a distance. But through our small screens, we can never see the larger picture or the, the human complexity. And I must say one reason why in this book I'm so often in the passenger seat uh, speaks yeah. for the sense that travel strips you of the illusion of knowledge. In other words, when I was a kid, I figured I was in control of everything and I knew everything. And the more I travel, the more I see I'm really at the mercy of everything. I'm in the passenger seat. I'm not driving. I'm not navigating the world. Mm. <laughs> I'm you know, that the elements and fate and much else is really determining 
my day. And as you say, often the people that I'm getting wisdom from are the least likely souls, but they've lived so much and they've seen so closely the places I'm going to visit that they can shed as much light as any foreign minister probably, and they can talk more freely. So you're right. It was very deliberate that in this book, I always sort of placed myself in the hands of a local. I wanted to rid myself of any illusion that I knew what I was doing because so often I don't. And if I do think I, I know what I'm doing, well, life quickly puts me in my place. And before we let you go, Pico Iyer, what do you take away from your reflections as you either as you were on this journey or as you were trying to write it up? Well, I concluded my book in Varanasi, almost the Asian Jerusalem, another place of great power. And what strikes me is that people go there to burn bodies and to commit their bodies to the holy river Ganges. So it's a city of death, but it's also a city of joy. And I think at the time of the pandemic, when death was breathing down our necks and around the corner, I was so glad to remember this place where death is not the end of things and where in the midst of the dead bodies floating down the river, people are in a permanent state of thanksgiving. And how to put those two together, that the fact that life is difficult doesn't mean we have to be despairing. In fact, it means we have to make the most of every moment and find our joy in the midst of our, our limited time. And I think the one other thing that generated this book was everybody knows and feels that even though the world is more connected than ever before, we're more divided. And so I was looking for what mm -hmm. joins us in the middle of our divisions, which is usually has something to do with human experience. So you know, when I'm sitting here in California, if I think about Iran or North Korea, I just think about everything that's different about them. As soon as I visit those places, I'm reminded of all that we have in common. And it's just a plea, really, to engage with our neighbors in the global village so as to cut through the barricades that we're building with our theories and with our abstractions, which really don't have much to do with what's going on in the world. Pico Iyer's new book is The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. Pico Iyer, great pleasure. Thanks so much for the time. So nice to talk to you, Scott. Thank you. You can read an excerpt from Pico's book at hereandnow.org. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by James Mastromarino, Koyani Saxena, and Emiko Tamagawa. Our editors are Gabe Bullard, Todd Bunt, Peter O'Dowd, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.